Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. April is National Deaf History Month, a time set aside to recognize the accomplishments of people who are deaf and hard of hearing. This classic master's interview features Dr. Michelle Christie, a leader in the field of deaf education and the founder of No Limits, a nonprofit organization that teaches vital success skills to underserved and economically disadvantaged children. After 18 years in the entertainment industry, Michelle returned to school and earned her master's and doctorate degrees in education so she could follow her dream of helping children with hearing loss and their families. Michelle will warm your heart with her lifelong commitment to serving underprivileged deaf children and give you an educated view into their world. If you enjoy this classic interview, please share it with your friends and visit mastersbywinclaybaugh.com to sign up for our mailing list. And remember, Masters podcasts are also available on the Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify podcast platforms. Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to what is, I know, going to be an incredible, incredible interview. I'm sitting here with Michelle Christie, and I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, Michelle was selected as one of 25 CNN heroes in 2017. Was that a surprise to you? Did you know it was coming? I mean... No, absolutely not. And they called me and they said, we have to do like three to four weeks of background checks on you before you even get selected. So don't get excited. Don't tell anybody. And so they asked like, like 30, 40 questions a day, you know, wow. and then eventually they said, we got the green light. We're coming tomorrow. I'm like, whoa. Okay. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I've watched it several times. Aww, it was just sweet. <laughs> so inspiring. Oh, thank you. Incredible. The kids are inspiring, definitely. Before we started recording this morning, uh, Michelle and I were sitting here talking, and I said I want this interview to be just as much about you as it is about this incredible uh, foundation that you have created, which is called uh, No Limits. And we'll, we'll talk about that. No Limits, you started in 1996 to help underserved and economically disadvantaged children with hearing loss gain the skills to succeed in school and life through its national theater program and after-school educational centers. Obviously, I'm reading this, Michelle, after 18 years in the entertainment industry, well, I'm going to call you Michelle, but you're actually Dr. Christie here. Yeah, but I can't cure anything. It's a doctor in education. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you cure <laughs> lots of things, sweetheart. You decided to follow your dream of working with children who have a hearing loss. You changed your career path and earned a master's degree in education with a full fellowship and distinguished honors from USC John Tracy Clinic Program. Later, Michelle received her doctorate in education from UCLA. You went to the best of the best, didn't you? Mm -hmm. uh, dissertation focused on the needs and experiences of low-income Latino parents of school-aged children with hearing loss. Yeah. That's pretty specific. It is, because those are the population that I'm really working with. I really am focused on families living in poverty and how do they get through this journey when they find out their child has a hearing loss, because it can be an uphill battle unless we can help them make the hills not so high. Dr. Christie has been the subject of multiple documentaries for her revolutionary educational techniques that have been replicated nationwide. No Limits, again this foundation that you have created, continues to be the only theater group in the country for children 
with hearing loss, learning to speak. We're going to talk about the difference of yeah. that. You actually have performed at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. with your kids. Twice. Twice. Yes, twice. And, and where else? Oh, I'm sorry. But Carnegie you just at Hall? Carnegie Hall? We were at Carnegie Hall. The kids were at Carnegie Hall. What, wasn't that in January of this year? December. So in December. 2016. It was amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Know, you. And tell us the story about John Autry, who was probably one, well, he was your first student, correct? He was my first student. And just then, so you know, you guys, uh, John Autry, you've seen him on Glee. He's an actor. He's, you've seen him on, on other TV shows as well. And... Uh, Tell us about well, I met that experience. John. Yeah, I met John when he was seven, okay. and it was my first year teaching where I was in this school, and my job was to get him to be mainstream with the hearing peers. So a whole class full, full of hearing children, and he was the only one with the hearing loss. And how, how profound he was He has a severe, his? profound loss, but at that time, a five-year-old hearing child has about 5,000 vocabulary words. John was seven when I met him, and I'd say he had about 50. Wow. So think about that communication and not being able to communicate or lack of to those kids. And he was given to me as like my student and I was supposed to get him to raise his hand in class and participate, but he had no idea what was going on in the classroom. And the kids were very physical with him and they were bullying him. They pulled down his pants. They did like really awful things to him. And so he had no way to communicate. So what did he do? He hit him back. You know, he just like had to physically do it and it was really causing trouble at the school. So it was my job immediately is to try to get him those communication skills. So I'd be sitting in the classroom like, John, raise your hand, raise your hand. Like, I know you know the answer. And he'd just start to cry, like big tears and these beautiful brown eyes. And then I just said, okay, I've got to bring him back to my speech room. I'm supposed to teach him how to talk, teach him the vocabulary. And he wouldn't talk to me. I would just be talking. He would just sit there and he looked so sad. He had no connection to the world around him. And so I called his mom immediately and said, look, what does John like to do? Like, I want to find something. I can bring in something that will excite him. And he said, oh, he loves Michael Jackson. So I brought in the bad CD. Remember that bad CD? And so we brought it in, got a boom box. I had this really small little speech room, and the principal's office was very close. But I knew I had to make it really loud, and I brought in a fake microphone. So I bring him back to the class, and he's there. Oh, here we go again. I'm not going to say anything. And I hand him a mic. And then I turn on the music. And he's just like turning around going, what? Like, where'd you get this music? How do you know I like this? So we connected through the music. And then all of a sudden, will you teach me how to dance? And he could do the moonwalk. I mean, he was amazing, just really wow. animated. And it was our first connection. And then he started learning what microphone meant and dancing. He didn't know what the word dance meant. So I was able to teach him through experiences. So he had to read a story about a dog going to a picnic. And so I decided, okay, I'll bring in a picnic basket and bring a blanket. And I brought in a dog's costume. I went and bought one. And we went and I asked the principal, it's okay if we go outside to the lawn and act this story out so he could understand it. And he started picking up language. And he started to read the book and be excited about it. And the teacher's like, wow, he's doing so well. So that summer is when I thought, well, what can I do for John in the summer? And that's when I started the theater company. No, because that was his dream. That was his still dream. his dream. Yeah, well, at first he didn't know what his dream was. And so when we did the theater, it was first time in front of people talking. Wow. That's got to be pretty terrifying. And all of the kids were the first time ever doing anything in front of an audience. 
they never got cast in plays. I mean, they weren't chosen. They had to lip read. Or I sometimes some of the kids I used to see at the school would just mouth like they were singing, even though they weren't singing, and no one taught them the words because they thought, oh, it'll be too hard for them. I'm like, no, no, no. These kids have to learn the language. They're gonna have to learn how to say their lines. And John was amazing that day, and it changed his life in the sense of it gave him confidence. It gave him the understanding of the power of speech. People laughed at his jokes. They loved him. And that year, when he did the play, at the end of every No Limits play, they each come out one by one taking a bow. And they say, I can be a... And the craziest thing is in my first rehearsal, I had no idea what I was doing. I was a teacher. I didn't know how to start a theater production for deaf children. But I remember sitting in a group and going around and saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? To all the little kids. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, do they not understand me? So I reworded it. Like, when you grow up, what do you want to be? No one would say anything. And then this little girl, Jackie, said, nobody ask me. And so that was when we really started talking about the future. Like, what do you want to be? And then John immediately said, after he started performing a little bit, I want to be an actor. And he never changed it. He was in every show. He came back and directed shows and did the workshop team. And he's always wanted to be an actor. And he is. How old is John today? 27. Yeah, he's a beautiful boy. He's a beautiful soul. Just a beautiful soul. He really is. Me too. Now, I'm going to read this. So Michelle started a grassroots effort to educate people across the world about the struggles and triumphs of people with hearing loss who have been raised using spoken language rather than sign language. Tell us the difference. Give us some education here on, and I have a feeling that you take a hit for this. Correct? I do. Um, well, so when explain I first, that and then yeah. we'll, people There's are a, like, what do you mean you get to take a hit? We'll get into that. There's a debate between children who are born with hearing loss, should they learn to speak or should they learn sign language? And it's a big heated debate. It's almost, it's like back in the 1800s because what used to happen is kids who wanted to learn sign language, they were told to sit on their hands or they were told not to use sign language. And so there's a lot of uh, frustration and anger based on the past. And then technology started coming about. 20 years ago when I started, they just had cochlear implants in the 1990s. And so it was very new technology, but with cochlear implants, kids were learning to speak because they could hear pretty well. They had to learn what they were hearing and the meaning of it, but they were hearing like you and me in the sense of being able to hear all the speech sounds. So there was more prominence towards spoken language. And so the deaf community who believes solely in sign language doesn't even really feel comfortable with kids you know, wearing hearing aids as adults, they just feel like there's no need to wear a hearing device because you were born deaf and you you should should be proud. You should remain deaf and be proud of that because there's a deaf culture, there's a deaf history. So signing only was the preference. And so when you go into this field and you start teaching deaf children how to speak, they feel like you're taking away the culture. You're shrinking it, right? Because here you have, if everyone's signing, you'll have more people in your deaf culture. But if you start teaching them how to speak and they don't learn sign language, then that culture is going to diminish. They used to call it the deaf genocide. Hearing aids, hearing devices is a deaf genocide. Okay. And so it's really heated in it. I understand it in many ways because it's scary. If you only can communicate with someone else who knows sign language, you become very isolated. So you want more people to learn sign language. Mm-hmm. And... The problem a little bit is is that 90% of families who have children with hearing loss are you and me. They're hearing. So the parents are hearing. hearing. And so they think, okay, 
Well, just like if I was Japanese, I want to teach my kid Japanese. If I'm speaking English, I want my child to speak English. And the technology was allowing it to become more successful for the kids. Mm -hmm. And so that really kind of took a turn. And so now when I started No Limits, it was still pretty much a situation where spoken language was still a little bit, well, I don't know if these kids, they have profound losses. They're never going to learn to speak. Why are you forcing and torturing them to speak? And I really believe that the kids could do both. They don't have, if you learn to speak, you have to learn it within the critical window years, which is usually zero to six. I feel like the window's a little bit longer because some of our kids don't hear until five and a half and they speak beautifully today. But they also learn sign language as adults. So we're never against sign language. We've never been against sign language. It's just giving parents a choice. And even John, as you'll see, he signs, Mm -hmm. I sign. Um, I sign as well. So there's nothing against sign language. It's just that the window of opportunity to learn speech is usually in the beginning years. So you have kids come to you mm-hmm. who have had no language, oh. and they're at what age? Give us oh, some I mean, of the, I hate to say it, some of the horrific stories. Well, what's crazy is 20 years ago, the stories are the same today. So that's what's the most frustrating is what have we done or what have we not done to make it better for the kids? Because when I first started, I had seven-year-olds not knowing their name. I have five-and-a-half-year-olds coming in just getting hearing aids for the first time. But there's universal newborn screening. You know, at the hospital, I'm sure Sophia... She was tested. tested. Yeah, I was there. Right? So they're tested right then. But say they fail, they got to contact the parent. Well, if you're low income, a lot of times you're scared. You don't know what's going to go on. You think maybe they're wrong, and you just delay it. And then there's a loss to follow up where they stop following delay, up. Delay, meaning getting hearing getting aids. Getting hearing or... aids, finding out if maybe the test was wrong. Maybe it is. Okay, maybe the child's right. fine. So a lot of our families find out around three, three or four. Okay. And now they've got to get hearing aids. Well, hearing aids are $6,000. Insurance doesn't cover about 5%, and they wow. only show a stipend like $500. And most wow. of our families don't have insurance, right? Right. Okay. So here you are, what am I going to do? I'll rely on the state. Okay, well, the state will provide it. Well, the turnaround for hearing aids sometimes is up to 12 to 14 months. Wow. So now their kid's four and a half, and now they're putting on sound for the first time. We call that the hearing age, the day that they can start to hear. Their hearing age isn't one when they got diagnosed. It's, you know, when they start to hear. So we have kids, and the majority of our kids today are five and a half, and when it's like they're hollow inside. They have spent five and a half years looking at Mal's move and not know one word, not have what, what any does connection. That, what does that mean for a child to not have language, mm-hmm. to not hear the voice of their parents, to not... Yeah be able to express love and receive love. What is that? It's like the child, um, what it's like to be able to not feel any connection to sound is very lonely. And you can see it in the kids. When they first come to No Limits, they will not look at you. You can tell they have no language because if they look at you, is your mouth going to say, hi, how are you? You're going to start talking and they don't know what you're saying. So they get very isolated and alone. They tend to have sometimes behavior issues because they're trying to touch you and tell you what they need, but they don't have the language to do it. So a lot of times they're put in like behavior programs and it's not a behavior issue, it's a language issue. And it's really difficult on the parents 
think about it. You want your baby to say something to you. You right. want to feel that connection. And sometimes parents don't know what to, to do, and they they stop talking to their child because they don't see the response of it. And that's really hard on parents to find out later how important it was for them to continue to try to engage with their child. Mm -hmm. But once they get to know them, it's within 10 weeks, they know their name. Mm -hmm. They know their age. They know they have a birthday. And you can just see the difference. It's like this hollow mm -hmm. look in their eyes. And they will look at you. And they, I'm not kidding. There's like all of a sudden something turns on and you can see it through their eyes. They're smiling. They're coming up to you, which is you know something they would never do. And they're saying hi, and someone's saying hi back, and they're turning to their name. They know Mary means them. And how exciting that must be mm -hmm. to know that they have meaning in their life now. And it changes the stress level in the families tremendously. What percentage of the parents of the kids that you work with are hearing? Uh, do we just have one parent who has a hearing loss? The rest are hearing. Well, okay. Yeah, so out of 600 kids. Okay, now some people are thinking, oh, well, the second that they get a cochlear implant or the hearing aids, problem solved. Mm -hmm. Educate us on yeah. what the brain has to go through to be able to, I, I don't even know the words to ask. Well, with a hearing loss, all of a sudden you start to hear. You go, oh my gosh, there's sound. So all of a sudden the electrodes, everything's going on in your brain. Things are going to the auditory nerve that's never been there before. Your brain has to process sound. And so you have to teach the meaning of that sound. So it takes a little bit of time to connect it. But like anything, you start to learn it. Once you start to get the hang of what we're trying to do, that this is a ball, you look at a ball, and that ball means this, and you connect it, it goes a lot more quickly than just kind of every single word has to be taught. They start to pick it up a lot faster. They start to hear the rhythm of language and understand that, you know, most of the time if they want something, you have to start with I want in those words. So... Without training, though, the cochlear implant, the hearing aid, is pretty much useless. Put a hearing aid on a kid who has had no language before, they're not going to get very much out of it. They might get some environmental sounds. It doesn't mean anything. It's just white noise. It's like us going to Russia. You hear them speaking Russian, and we hear it. It doesn't mean we understand it. And so for these kids, it's so frustrating to hear white noise all the time. So you have to stop and train. Okay, I want to kind of jump around here a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. First of all, why theater? Mm. Like, why, you know, I get it that you're teaching them, you know, language and and you're dealing with some of the mm -hmm. other issues related to being low income and mm -hmm. Latino and, and all that, but why put them in theater? For me, the reason I started the theater program is I wanted them to feel good about who they were. It was not just educational, like teaching them grammar and literacy and all of that good stuff. That came with theater, creativity and expression. But I wanted them to feel great about who they were and are. But most importantly, I wanted the audience, too, to see them and perceive them differently. I wanted their classmates not to see them as, oh, that's that kid over there with the hearing aids or disabled kid and who's always got a little extra help. I wanted to put them in a professional production. This was not at a school. It was never at a school. It was always at a paid theater where people came in and paid for the show. And so these kids were special. They were doing a professional production. So when people came in, they expected a lot from them. And that was great. They didn't oh. see them anymore as disabled. They're like, oh, they're in a show. They're going to be performing for us. Oh. And what I could do with the audience is to say to them, 
look what they're capable of doing. No longer feel sorry for our kids. Okay. Look at what they can do. At the end of performance, you, you said that each one comes out and takes an individual <laughs> bow, mm. which is... So sweet. It's so sweet. Then you also do Q&A. Well, with the so the audience can interact with what are yeah. So with that. our when we started the theater group in '96, we didn't have a Q and A. We what we did is we did autographs. So we said to the audience, "Our actors are going to sit on the edge of the stage. Please come up, and they'll sign your the autograph in the playbill." So what I did was break that kind of oh gosh, I don't you know hearing people talking to these deaf kids. I didn't want to hurt their feelings if they didn't understand them. And what did the kids get? You were great, fantastic, you were funny. And so they're getting compliments, and then the audience is feeling a little more connected to these kids. But with Silent No More, the show that recently uh, was debuted at, at uh, Carnegie Hall, we do a Q&A. And the reason we do the Q&A is that we want the audience to participate and understand the needs of these actors who are sharing these incredible, inspiring stories. They've gone through a lot of heartache to get where they are today. And then also we invite the signing only community, which is called the Big D. So there's a Big D and a Little D. Big D means signing only. Little D means you can speak and sign. And there's a big distinction in the deaf community between the two. And if you are brought up with a cochlear implant or wearing hearing aids and learning to speak, you will never be welcomed into the deaf community according to the rules. So here we are. We're raising kids learning to speak. Now they become fluent in sign language. They get older and they want to be part of the deaf community and they want to be part of the hearing community. Okay. And the deaf community says, mm, uh-uh. Yes, you know sign language, but you have a cochlear implant. Mm. And so the whole show is about, can we break that? Is there a way that we can break this divide of years of history, hundreds of years at this point, of this debate? And can't we unite? Because our kids, yes, they've learned to speak, but they are signing. And they want to have a culture, too. And right now, they're stuck in the middle. It's a lot like Kathy talks about it. It's like, she's yes, she speaks, so she's part of the hearing world. But she wants to be part of the deaf world, where she's right in the middle. There's no culture for these kids. And so as they get older, they start to feel lonely and isolated themselves because they're in the mainstream with the hearing world. But the fact is when, you know John, he misses information. Someone talks behind him. Someone talks beside him, and he doesn't see or hear. He misses information. So he's not really part of the hearing world, even though you can communicate with him. So for John, it's like he really wants to be part of the deaf community. And right now, it's starting to change a little bit, which is good. But a lot of our kids really want to have that. Do you have a lot of, as you call them, the the big D, Mm -hmm. signing only people come to these Place, the I invite them, yes. And do a lot show up? Yes, it's okay. fantastic. And what's so amazing is that they will go up and ask questions. And they'll say, I don't believe in what you do of teaching these kids to speak. But let me tell you something. I had no idea they had struggles. Mm-hmm. I assumed that they were part of the hearing world and they got all the benefits of the hearing world. And it's changed people's perception. Wow. And they have taken, they even say, I mean, the majority of the time we have at least five people who come up and say, I am embarrassed that I have judged people. And that's education, right? It's just bringing people together and having that discussion and seeing that our kids are the same as their kids. And the fact is, they're in the same field. If you take off the hearing aids of a big D and a little D, they're all deaf. Right. They all can't hear. So whether they sign or speak, does it really matter? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's where we're trying to, we're really talking about the elephant in the room. Nobody is addressing it. 
And so it's become very powerful, the performances. I'm curious to know what are the types of questions that the hearing audience asks? The hearing audience will ask questions like, do you have a lot of friends? Do you ever take your hearing aids off and wish that you could hear again? Uh, Most of the kids on stage will say, you know, I like being deaf. I'm okay with it. Even though I've had all the struggles, they wouldn't change it. It's who they are. Um, A lot of the questions by the hearing people are more about how the cochlear implant works or how hearing aids work. How much can you really hear? There's always these like deaf and mute, you know, where they have these phrases old fashioned. Are you stone deaf? There's no, there's no such thing as stone deaf. You know, that's profoundly deaf means that an airplane comes by us right now. And it's like zooming by, we wouldn't hear an airplane, Mm. a profound loss. Mm. I would say 98% of our kids have profound losses. Wow. And so you, and is that at birth or was it later through a, most a, a of our, disease or? That's a, that's a good question because people often ask, you know, well, how, how come these kids have a deafness? What happened? Were they sick at birth? Sometimes it's prematurity. 50% is genetic and the 50% is what you're saying, like disease. Sometimes kids get meningitis mm-hmm. and they lose their hearing. Sometimes uh, when babies are born prematurely, they literally will tell the parents, we're giving the medicine to keep your child alive, but the medicine will cause deafness. Really? Wow. So the medicine is causing it. So parents have to make that choice. And, of course, they're going to choose, you know, keeping their child alive where they get the hearing devices uh, right after birth. Okay, now I'm really, I want to jump yeah. around and, and talk about you. So, uh, by the way, our, our very good friend, Kathy Buckley, who I interviewed with Masters, uh, she was the first hearing-impaired comedian and has mm-hmm. been on The Tonight Show and traveled with Tony Robbins for years. She's this phenomenal, phenomenal woman and speaker. And so... And my friend. And and my friend. No, my friend. She's my my friend. friend. (laughs) She she helped me come up with some uh, things to ask you. So Mm -hmm. she wanted me to ask you who you were. Who was Michelle Christie when you were five years old? Hmm. I was a shy, scared, lonely five-year-old. And why was that? What was your what was your upbringing? Did you have siblings? What was your your home life with you know your parents? Mm-hmm. Well, when I was born, my mom had already been married, and she had my brother and sister from a different man. She met my dad, did not marry him, and had me. And that at birth, they had planned to put me up for adoption because it was just you know it was one of those accidental things. I guess when I was born, she decided to keep me, and my dad. You know, he said he went to church and prayed and basically, you know, he he wasn't ready to raise me. So he moved to Chicago and my mom raised me with my brother and sister. And my mom was an aspiring actress Um, and she worked three jobs. She also worked at bars and did her thing, but she really did not know how to parent. And I think that, you know, she would say and often like she wished she didn't have us because we kind of prevented her. She would say that. Yeah, she would say that to us a lot because we got in her way of stardom, she felt. Like she, all she wanted to be was famous. And she was beautiful and, and yes, talented, but she was never around. So she would go and work at night or all day long and we wouldn't see her sometimes for days. And my sister was five years old. At what age? At five, I was five, we, she would leave for days. My sister, my brother, my brother was nine and my sister was 10 and they basically raised us. My brother describes our childhood as like wildcats. We had no discipline, we had no food, we would just, you know, no bedtime stories. Uh, we were just left 
to kind of fend for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, my sister was very, you know, when I look at her, because she was five years older, she was my hero. Like, she took care of us, and she tried her best. She would go to the store and try to scrape up money. We used to do things where, sounds kind of insane, but it was, I think, pretty smart when I look back. We would pretend to have scavenger hunts. We'd go, like, not on our block because they knew us. And we would go to other blocks, and we'd pretend to have a list of, like, thread and, you know, you know, a, a piece of yarn and, you know, all of these things. And in between would be food. We'd be like, So eggs. that's how you would get food. That's how we'd get food. Wow. And oh so we gosh. would, but we were smart enough to know, like, what do you feel like? And like bacon and eggs sounds really good. So we'd go and like, we'd put our menu together and they'd mix in these weird things. So people wouldn't think that we were asking for food. So, you know, I'd hear my sister go, we got eggs. And I'm like, I got bacon. <laughs> and wow. We would come home and, you know, we were always, you know, uh, together. Being years apart from my brother and sister, it was a little bit harder. Um, also, they looked very different than me. They were very tall and and um, olive skin, and they just looked different. So no one ever thought that I was part of the family, mm-hmm. uh, but because I had a different dad, you know. Right. So five years old, I I spent a lot of time by myself. I didn't talk at all. How did you do in school? You know, school was my savior. Okay. School was my home. It was my safe place. I didn't never wanted to go home. So we lived in a place where I'd walk to school and walk home, you know, by myself to the school. And I just would stay as long as I possibly could at school because I never wanted to go home to that empty house. And my brother and sister were older, so they never really came home either. So we just kind of fend for ourselves. So I would play by myself like tetherball or, you know, just do as much as I could to avoid going home. Hmm. You think that's what maybe... Uh guided you into education, wanting to create that safe yeah, place I think for, so. for kids who would be considered the underdog? Yeah, I'm very much the underdog for sure. I think for me, not being able to communicate very well, I didn't do well in school. I was a good student in the sense like I did everything a teacher told me to do. I tried to get great grades. I did everything I could. But the fact was is that no one read a book to me. We didn't have books at home. We didn't have anyone helping me with homework. So I was an overachiever because I wanted to make those teachers proud of me. So I worked extra, extra hard. But not, I well, think... Well, Dr. Christie, it paid off. <laughs> I'm the only one in, who went to college. So I'm, <laughs> I am proud of that in my uh, immediate family. My sister was really smart, really brilliant, thankfully. She never went to school. She, you know, she ditched all the time because she didn't know what Abe was following up and she forged everybody's teacher's name. She was like, work the system. But she graduated from high school and my brother barely made it, but we all kind of got, we, we found ways to survive. Mm-hmm. And I think what's amazing is I feel like I've been blessed with acts of kindness. These people who just come in probably have no idea what kind of impact they had on my life, but like our neighbors, as I was getting older, I think they started kind of figuring it out. Like the, the, these three kids are wild cats and they're yeah. left alone for days. Mm-hmm. And so somehow, and I don't know the story, the backstory, but all of a sudden I was going over to the Herndon's family's house for dinner. And they took me, and then another family took my brother, and another family took my sister. So we would So sit, they all got together. <laughs> they all got together and said, let's feed them. And instead of turning in my mom or doing things like that, because I think they knew that we need to have a family, you know, a mom, even though she wasn't really around, is that I sat with a family. I sat with a mom and a dad and siblings, and they argued at the table, and they said, pass the butter. And I was like, butter? Like, yummy. you know. So I was able to see 
what life was supposed to be like. And it was inspiring for me because I felt like maybe one day I'm going to get that. And my mom didn't have any relatives. I had no aunts, uncles, grandparents. We had no relatives at all. And uh, that was a really lonely time because no one was coming and visiting us or cousins or we didn't have anything. It was just the three of us. Do you have a a special story of a a teacher that made a big impact in your life? Yeah, there's this teacher and it's the craziest name. I know you're not going to believe me, but her name was Mrs. Smiley. That's crazy. I swear to God. Mrs. Her name Smiley. Was a, you, you have to be a teacher when you have Mrs. Smiley as your name, and right? you have to be a nice, good teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So she was in a, a third grade teacher, and she um, she was someone who knew I was staying after school a lot. So she would ask me right before the bell would ring every day and say, hey, do you want to stay after and help me grade papers? Hey, you want to erase the board for me? And I just thought I was the most special person. I had no idea that she probably knew what was going on, but... I just felt really special, and she used to always say, you know, you can do it. You're going to be great. You're a good girl, and she fed things in my head, so when I was feeling down or lonely, I could hear her voice in me saying, you're going to get through this. You're going to be okay. You're a great kid. You're so smart, and I'd be like, she thinks I'm smart. Like, I didn't think I was smart. Um, Everyone else seemed to be doing so much better than me, but she believed in me, and she saw something special in me, and I want to be that Mrs. Smiley to the kids that I work with. So what was your last connection with her? Well, just recently, she the CNN heroes, it was so funny. That, oh, you're kidding. They, she, so yes. She's alive and they talk to her? Well, what? what happened is my son says, oh, why don't you write Mrs. Smiley? I go, I don't know how to do that. And, of course, like 30 seconds later, he's like, here she is. Here's her email. Oh, <laughs> of course. Of course. Your, your son's how old are you? 13, yeah. yeah exactly. They, they can figure this out. Yeah. He's like, here it is. So I wrote her and then uh, she wrote me and back. And it was just really special because... I think for her, what a gift that I can give her to say, you really impacted my life. And a lot of the reason I started No Limits is because you believed in me. And I don't think she had any clue, like, how much it meant and how her voice was in my head. And sadly, when my sister died, she died in a car accident when I was 15. And uh, I remember her writing a letter. And I remember thinking, Mrs. Smiley is thinking about my family right now. And this is 10 years later. Like, she she didn't have to, probably like 7 to 10 years later. She wrote, and I just, I still have that letter. Because it was like, she just didn't, it wasn't just a third grade teacher. Right. Right? She was more than that. She really cared and wanted to know that. And she wrote an interesting letter because it said to Shannon, my mom, and said, um, Make sure you take care of your other kids. Mm Kind of like, don't forget. Right. Don't forget the other ones. You know, and it was a, a real meaningful thing because she was still thinking of my brother. So, how old is Mrs. Smiley today? I don't know. I think she's in her seventies. She looks great. So, wow, yeah, that's so cool. It is cool. Um, okay, so you you said your mom was a aspiring mm-hmm. actress. Did you fall into that as well? Well, I think what happened just by chance is I went on an interview with her. It was something for her, and they cast me. <laughs> what was it for? It was for a commercial. And how old were you? I was eight. And I think at that point my mom knew that this would be an opportunity to bring money in for the family. Okay. So I became not an agent, and I did not like it. It wasn't my thing. I was really shy. This was not something I wanted to do. I don't like being in front. I'm always a behind-the-scenes person, even today. It's just hard for me. It's just not something right. I'm comfortable doing. And so... I um, started doing acting, and I started getting commercials after commercials. I was redhead, freckle-faced kid, and that was kind of the cool thing back then. And so I was getting all this 
these shows and, and it was just crazy and it it kind of caused tension in the family as much as it brought in money it also pissed off my mom because she you was, were successful and uh, yeah and, uh, I, and I didn't even want it and that's I think sometimes makes it worse right because right. I'm not even trying and and so um, I did some acting then and then I really loved theater um, I started theater in high school and it was my release and uh, it allowed me to be somebody else and I love that, and just being someone else. And so theater brought me out of my shell. I started feeling a lot better about myself, feeling stronger, and I could see I was changing. I was becoming more confident. And so I had a very strong theater background, and I started doing professional plays outside even in high school, going to acting classes, and just really putting my heart and soul in it. And so when the theater came for No Limits, it just seemed like a natural thing because I did have the theater back on and I was very much like John. Mm-hmm. You know, John not talking, John shy, John struggling to be who he was and accepting who he was. And so the theater was a great way for John and for me to grow as human beings. You guys just uh, go ahead and, and go to YouTube and put in John Autry so you can see his performance on <laughs> Glee. Yeah, it's beautiful. We'll just... Bring you to tears. Oh, it's just amazing. He's, it's, he, he signs mm-hmm. and speaks to John Lennon's Imagine. It's yeah. phenomenal on Glee. And what's amazing about John is he gives back. Like he could just move on. But what does he do? He comes back to No Limits. He works with the kids. When the parents come in and they just found out their baby has a hearing loss, I mean, it is painful to oh, be I'm at sure. that meeting. And they're crying, and they've never met anyone who speaks who are successful adults. And I'm like, oh, hold on one second. John, come here, come here, come here. And John walks in, and he's like, hey. And they're like, what? You know? And, and they're just so blown away by right. him. And think about the power of that. For a parent who is lost, has no idea what to do, and when they go on the internet and they just see all this negativity about how they're going to function at a fourth grade level, they're going to have a hard time graduating from high school, and then you look at John, you're like, what? And I go, guess what? There's a lot of them. (laughs) We have a lot of kids who are in college or graduated from college who are doing really well and successful. And to give that hope to a parent, there's nothing better. Wow. Nothing better. How many kids are you currently working with? Well, we have 600 kids a year that we work with wow. uh, nationwide with our theater program. We have a leadership class for the teens, so John can come back for that as well and, and really teach the kids how to get through those hard times, like that high school years where, you know, there's a lot going on. So we can guide them through it because we want these kids to go to college. We really do. Um, and if they decide not to go, that's up to them, but they better be college ready. We're going to do everything we can wow. so they have that choice. So these kids... And I apologize, I'm jumping all over the no place. Worries. So these kids that you're serving, see 600 kids, so they're in regular schools, and then they come to you at night? Good question. So we have educational centers where it's an after-school program. Okay. So they'll come after school. So during the day, they do their schoolwork. Now, unfortunately, a lot of these kids are not in great school programs. So some of them are in, they call self-contained classes, just with other kids with hearing loss. The problem with LAUSD and some of the bigger programs is that they're throwing them in with other disabilities, so kids who maybe don't speak or have autism. And it's a, just a different disability. It's a different need. And so they're not getting a lot of communication, and they're staying in these classrooms and not growing. I have so many people who you know will come and say, well, you know, Christian's doing really well. And I go, but he can't read and write, and he's nine. And they say, well, he's doing better than everyone else in the class. <laughs> I'm like, but you're comparing the other five students. I need you to compare 
to the majority where they're going to have to get a job and they're going to have to mm -hmm. be able to communicate. So the school system just is not providing what these kids need. So we kind of fill in all the loopholes. So it's required by teachers. If they're teaching fifth grade, they must teach fifth grade material. But if they test these kids, and you'll see on these things called IEPs, these little contracts by the school, that they function at a second grade. But then they require the teacher to teach fifth grade. Well, do you think if they're functioning at a second grade, how are they going to understand fifth grade material? So we can go back. That's why our kids do so. We go back and we teach a second grade, fill in all the things that they missed, get them up to third grade, fourth grade, and then eventually they'll be on grade level. And the program at No Limits is our goal is when they're in our program for one year, they gain two years or more of language. Wow. So when they do it, within three years, we can get them mainstreamed with their hearing peers. So they're coming how many days a week after school? Three. It's hard. Three days a week. Yeah, it's and a lot. And they're there till when? They'll come at 3.30 and stay till 5.30, 6.30. Wow. And it's individual therapy, but parents are have to be in the classroom with them. So it's teacher, parent, child. And then we also have a literacy program, so they'll be able to read and write. And then we also have some academic tutoring. Whatever they need, we're going to fill in. We have loaner hearing aids. We have STEM program, which is science technology, engineering, math, parent education. Parents are required two hours a week. They have to come to parent education. Sweet. And so the parents love it, but we require it because we say, okay, it can't be optional because we know this is a key to the success of these kids. So the parents learn how they can work with their kids at home. And remember, these are families who, some of them haven't graduated from middle school or high school. Right. So they're thinking, my kid's going to go to college? Are you sure? Is that possible? <laughs> so we are actually telling the parents what the potential of their child is. Wow. And so it's really emotional for them. And even a lot of these families feel such guilt because they don't have the financial means to help their child. And that's really painful. Okay, so they're not paying for that. They don't no, have the free. means to pay for it. It's all free. It's free. How do you pay for it? Funding. We do a lot of grant writing. We try to diversify our portfolio. So we have about a third of it is grant writing. So we write a lot of grants. A third of it is events and a third of it is individuals. And so we're really kind of dividing it all up. So we have a big gala. We have some walkathons, but we focus a lot on diversifying our, our revenue. And we've doubled our operating budget the last five years in a lot because of Paul Mitchell. What you guys have done for our kids. We've been able to open up new centers in Las Vegas and Oxnard. The cool thing about No Limits is we're frugal. Like, we, if we can get it for free, we're going to get it for free. We're not going right. to spend money on just wasteful things. that we, If it's paper and pens and dry erase markers, we've got a wish list program, and people donate all of that stuff. So our, our expenses is the teachers. We pay the teachers so the parents don't have to pay, and the teachers give us an incredible rate. They could get double what they're doing, but they right. want to work with these kids. Right. And it's amazing. We have 100% of our kids go to college, 100 Wow. 100. So I'm really proud of that, and we want to keep that going. Well, I don't want to, you know, brag here, but I just put it out there so people realize, you know, what can be done. My Paul Mitchell students have donated to date over $600,000 to No Limits. You know, I don't know how to, how to thank you for that. I really don't. It's weird coming from poverty myself, and, and so I know the struggles that these families go through, and it if someone like Paul Mitchell was out there for my mom to help her when she was struggling or for us to have food or for us to help with academics or any of that stuff, you know, I think about my brother and sister who really struggled and it's just, it would have changed the world. So right. thank you. How much are these kids bullied? Oh, I think, I, I don't want to just say kids with hearing loss are bullied because a lot of kids are bullied outside of hearing loss, but our right. kids get, get bullied. But you know what's interesting? 
this new generation of kids, we just had a leadership program and we asked them about bullying. And they're a little bit like because we've kind of prepared them for advocacy, they have better advocacy skills than probably my own son because he's not had to prepare for it. So they're kind of funny to me. Like, I was like, do you get bullied? Like, yeah, I tell them they're just idiots. You know, I'm like, oh, like they don't care. Like they are like, if they don't like me, then I don't like them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if they pick on them, they know to walk away. They know to tell a teacher, but they don't take it seriously. They just have feel, they feel really good about themselves. Wow. So the bullying has continued, but their reaction has changed. You speak about deaf children having dreams. Why is that so important to you? I think having dreams gets you to the destination. It's like, okay, we're going to go to Chicago. Well, if you don't get a map and figure out where Chicago is, you're probably not going to get there. So for us, it's having a dream, knowing where you're headed. And if it's college, let's have that dream and let's work on it and figure out the path to take you there. So a lot of times I'll ask the parents, what do you want for your child? You know, I want them to be able to get a job, to be independent. Well, how are you going to do that? What are you doing as a parent to make that path as clear as possible. So we have a college-going culture at No Limits where we talk to the parents, we take the kids to universities and mm-hmm. walk around the campuses. And the kids are sometimes more amused by the Taco Bell and the arcade machine but that they see at the colleges. But then right. they go in the libraries like, now you guys are gonna go to college. And it's like, wow, I can go to college too? Right. And you know, for me, uh, college was never discussed in my family. So none of us went to college. And um, it wasn't until I was 23 that I went for my undergrad. Yes, doctor. <laughs> so um, I was told that deafness is the number one birth defect. I know. Isn't that crazy? 33 babies a day are born with hearing loss. Wow. And it's 90%, like I said, are hearing parents. Wow. So what is the difference between deaf and hard of hearing? Well, there's the medical term deaf means you have the inability to hear. But hard of hearing is where people feel that you're probably speaking, you have a lot more hearing than someone who's deaf. There's a big controversy over it now because we don't really know, like if you ask a deaf person, are you deaf? They would think, well, I don't sign, so I guess I'm not deaf. But they have profound loss, so they are clinically or medically deaf because it it means more than just the medical term, it means culture. Got it. So if you're a big D, deaf means signing only. For our kids, John would describe himself as deaf because he's very comfortable with himself. Okay. But um, the fact is, if you take off your hearing aid, you can't hear anything. Got it. And why did you choose deaf children? I mean, is there a deafness in your family? There's no deafness. There's no deafness in my family. I don't know anyone who's deaf. Maybe people ignored me. I don't know. But I just love it. Because you were a speech therapist. (laughs) Well... I became a speech therapist after I decided to go in the field, but it was one of those things. I was working in the entertainment industry my whole life and wasn't satisfied with that and just decided one day, you know what? I know sign language. I had been learning it through the years. I think it's a beautiful language. And I quit my job and basically volunteered for a year in the deaf community, signing signing programs, working with kids who sign, and then decided I'll get my master's and become a teacher of the deaf. How difficult was it for you to learn how to sign? And are you you pretty... I'm pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty good. I feel like for our kids, it takes about three months. Someone my age takes a little bit longer, a couple years, like where you're really able to be fluent or be certified. And how did you learn? You know what? I didn't know anyone deaf, so I did a lot of uh, reading books. And then when I worked in the deaf community, they were all signing, so I learned by meeting other deaf people that I didn't really know. So was was there like a, a turning point for you where you got so specific with 
working with low-income Latino families in the deaf world and that you need to create a, a children's theater. Yeah. What was the turning point? Well, we, when I first started, it was with John. That was the reason I started the theater group. So right. I got other kids to do that. So we, at that point, it wasn't necessarily low-income families or Latino families. It was all families I can help with the theater program. Then I started doing the theater program. People said, well, someone called me from New York. Are you going to come out here? And I'm like, hmm, I'm just in L.A. They're like, well, we want to do it out here. So someone uh, funded it, brought me out there, and I did a New York show. And then someone from Connecticut, I just got back to L.A., and they're like, will you come out to Connecticut and do it here? I just saw the show. Our kids need it. So all of a sudden, I've been asked to go, and I was flying everywhere (laughs) doing all of this craziness. And what I learned is as I was talking to the families, the low-income families were struggling. And I could close my eyes when, and I could tell you by just listening to the kids' speech who had the money to get private therapy and who didn't. Okay. And that just didn't seem fair. So right. I came back to L.A., and I said, I went to my board, and I said, we need to start an educational center, and we've got to help these low-income families have an equal playing field. It's unfair that this hearing loss, if you have money, your kids are probably going to do okay. If you don't have money, your kids are going to be at a fourth-grade level by the time they get to high school. Well. And it's not an intellectual thing, right? It has nothing to do with your brain. It has to do with the fact that you didn't get the services or the resources. So there was no way I was going to allow that happen. So we take the underdogs. I mean, I get calls from people. They say, look, this parent, you know, I don't think you should take them. Their kid's not going to do very well. They're never going to learn to speak. Don't waste your time. And Wait, I'm like, that, that call comes from who? Oh, implant centers, people with an audiologist. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but we don't really know that. So I don't think we should be making those assumptions. And then what happened is when I started 20 years ago, the fact is, is that hearing aids weren't digital at that point. Cochlear implants were just coming out. So it was going against the norm. So they were thinking, why are you doing this? Why are you helping these kids who are never going to succeed? But thank God I did because... The kids did fine. They're all doing really well. I mean, every single one in our program, you know, is in college or graduated from college. So, I mean, thankfully, you know, I wasn't going to be so narrow-minded and just assume that they're low-income, that they're never going to make it. Talk to us about advocacy. Mm. So are you going into public school systems to educate on how to properly provide services and resources for uh, kids who are deaf? Um, well, what are you helping you know governments change laws and well, we've been fighting a lot for advocacy because there's some certain things that are just absolutely crazy for instance at the schools in LA if a child can't afford hearing aids so they go to the school and the school says hey we've got loaner hearing aids you can wear them during the day so you got your little four-year-old little five-year-old borrowing these hearing aids at school seems terrific right at least they have sound they're learning when they get to the bus stop the teacher puts out their hand, and the kid has to give back the hearing aids. So they go home at 2.30. What happens from 2.30 till the next day? Well, they have no connection to their family, They have, and they start to cry because they like their ears. They like to hear. And so we really fought against that, and now that has changed. Where they were, they were allowing people to have iPads or students to have iPads. <laughs> they could take those no. Out, no hearing aids. Like that doesn't make right. any sense. So it was right. a really easy argument once iPads came in. But for us, we are about educating and advocacy for the families. Our parents go out there and advocate for their child, but what we ask them to do is pay it forward. So they have to take two families a year mm-hmm. and 
teach them their advocacy skills that they learned at No Limits, outside of No Limits. It can't be a parent inside No Limits. They're, they're getting the services they need. So a family who can't come three days a week, who doesn't have the resources to get out, they'll go to them and help them become advocates because the best thing a parent can do is to go into that meeting and be prepared. Fight for their child. And fight for their child. Say, I'm sorry, that's just not enough. I won't sign it. I'm not signing it. Got to figure something out. And they know exactly what to do. So... The No Limits families is hilarious now because the school system is like, oh, you go to No Limits? All right. Just like, you know, just get to the point. Where, what do you want? Right. Because our, they're just knowing right. that the parents are not going to back down. Do you help other organizations across the country, other foundations who are trying to do what you're doing? You just said that they fly you out to Connecticut so that you could help that group put on a theater show. Right. So we work with a lot of schools across the country, also a lot of foundations who maybe give implants, but they want to see the results of the implant so we can work with their kids and put theater productions on. A lot of our, our goal is to keep partnering and keep educating about the abilities. And sometimes you'll get a school who works with children with hearing loss and they'll say, well, is it okay if they just read their lines? And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> they're going to memorize them. They're like, but he's only seven. I'm like, oh, well, we have five-year-olds, so they're, they memorize their lives. So it's even teaching the educational the, you know, system and the educators to keep their high expectations. I, I, expect more. Expect more from them. They're not right. going to, no, no, no. You're not. And then sometimes I've come, to, the last week I come to all the shows, and I'll see that the teachers are mouthing the words to the like giving them the lines and I'm like no 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 they have to kind of go up there and figure it out because you don't know what's going to happen on stage and so that I remember Kathy Buckley saying to me oh my gosh Michelle you're so tough on the kids like give them a break and I'm like oh no no we have to keep the expectations high because once we start lowering them the kids will lower them too and the fact is that these kids are professionals on stage are absolutely amazing you would be shocked on how well they speak how well they follow directions and we had a the learning channel do a and pbs do a show on the kids and they featured us and they went backstage and saw how the kids like changed costumes and did everything on their own they were very independent they said we've been to professional productions and there's more people helping the kids than you do and wow. it's because we want to teach them life skills we want them to be able to achieve their dreams who, who writes the shows that they're performing I do. You write it? <laughs> yes. Don't, don't tell me you're sewing the costumes and everything. <laughs> well, when I first started, I didn't have any money, and I was living in my one-bedroom apartment, and I put everything on my credit cards. Now, thankfully, we have you know costume people and set designers and stuff. But with the plays, we wanted them to be original because I didn't want anyone to have like the better part or the lead role. I wanted everyone to feel like they had a lead role. So I'm able to write the plays where everyone has equal access on stage. Oh. So it's really important to me. Also, if a child like John always, he doesn't hear his S sound. So even today, he doesn't hear S or SH or the TH sound. So, But he still needs to know how to pronounce them, right? So I can take a name, a character that I wrote named Hank, and I can change it to Sam. So John would have to, I would say, what character are you? And he'd say, am. And I go, no, it's Sam. And then I could practice the S sound just by using it, changing the character's name. And it doesn't impact us in any way. So I can change words in the play based on the needs of each child's wow. ability. So it's really fun. Okay, well, back to John again. If he, he doesn't hear mm -hmm. S or SH, then how do you teach him to be able to speak it? Fantastic question. So he doesn't hear it. But he has had to learn grammar. So he knows when, like when he was little, he'd say, like, I have two dog. 
And I go, John, it's two dogs. There's two, so you have to put an S on it. So his brain has now been programmed because he's been practicing how to pronounce words and knowing that he's not hearing it, but he still needs to say it. But you'll still catch him. I still catch him missing some of those words. And Wait a minute. So if he, when he says the S sound, does he hear himself say it? No, but it? he knows where his tongue's supposed to be for the Sam. Wow. It's pretty cool, huh? So it's, it's just the whole function of the body and how the brain works and fills in all the gaps for him. He really would be a, uh, you know, he's thinking of getting a cochlear implant. He's scared, but he wants to get one. A lot of it's insurance right now. They're what, about would, what would that do for him? What would change for him to I, do that? Because he has hearing aids, but what would that do? It would, uh, if he received a cochlear implant, he would end up not having to work so hard. Okay. He works really hard to listen. He's looking at you. He's filling in all the, the gaps through his lip-reading skills. If he had a cochlear implant, you could sit next to him, not look at him, and he would still need to get training, but once he would receive the training after a year, he would be able to talk, maybe even hear his name behind. So okay. if you said, John, he'd probably turn around. He does it sometimes, but it's usually you know because he knows that someone's behind him, he might turn around. But it would be pretty amazing for him. Educate us about the cochlear implant. Is it? it it's you it's, see it. It's it's yeah. So the deaf so community. So cosmetically. Cosmetically, you can see extreme. it. Extreme. For boys especially, right? Because you know, girls, you can't even tell they have cochlear implants on. The girls cover them up. Literally, you cannot tell. Right. Boys with with more hair you yourself would be seeing a lot in John too, you would see his implant. But implants used to be these big, huge sacks that would sit in front of your chest and you'd have to have special pockets in your shirt. And right now they look like hearing aids. They're just bigger, but then they have this, it's called a magnet. And that receiver goes and you can see it. So just like CNN Heroes, they showed a picture of the implant and there was like these comments about the kids looking like robots and picking on the kids with some of the response. And it was really painful because these kids saw it. And it's like this is allowing these kids to hear, I mean, hear crickets, hear birds, hear their stomach growl, which is kind of terrifying because they just really didn't think the stomach made noise with so when they said like oh, my stomach is growling they just thought it was a term and they're like well, what is that sound they're like oh your stomach's really growling so they can hear sounds that are just absolutely amazing so um did you hear about that father who had yes the tattoo, tattoo. i love that wasn't yeah. that awesome because his tell tell the story oh so he has a baby a, a little girl who has an implant and so he had no hair and he just he tattooed an implant so he would be like his daughter yeah. or his daughter would be like him but it was a beautiful moment and in the cochlear implant today like if you talk to our kids our kids don't care like they really it doesn't bother them right. they say now uh kids with uh, digital devices or hearing devices will wear their implant more than they will wear their hearing aids because they get so much value out of it kids when they're like middle school high school we have a couple kids now who you know, they think, oh, gosh, if I can get away with not wearing and people won't know and I'll have more girls or more boys or whatever, they, you know, they're trying to date and it just feels awkward. With the implant, those kids tend not to take them off. Um, I hear that at one of your productions, Jerry Seinfeld showed up and you guys turned him away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was at my first show when it was my first show. I didn't even know anyone was going to be coming, let alone, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. So it was at this theater that I had had all my acting classes at, so I knew it well. It was called the Beverly Hills Playhouse. It's a beautiful little theater. And I was so nervous. I was crying like three days before thinking, what the hell have I got myself into? What if the kids don't hear on stage? And there was a volunteer, and she was at the door, and I said, look, once I shut the door, 
do not open the door because the light will come in and it may be distract the kids. I didn't know it was her first time on stage. I said, absolutely no one. She's like, okay, Michelle, you know. So Jerry Seinfeld gets there late with his uh, manager, who's very famous, George Shapiro, comes in and he's like, I'd like to see the play. And she's like, well, Michelle Christie. <laughs> oh Thanks for using my name. Said no. He's like, who is this Michelle Christie? She said no. So I don't even know. So afterwards, after the show, she comes and she goes, you know Jerry Seinfeld, that really famous comic? He was here. I go, he was. He saw the show. She goes, oh, no, I didn't let him in. You told me not to. And I was like, ah! And, I, at this point, literally no funding, no grants, no budget. So uh, it was pretty hilarious. Did you connect with him later at Well, George point? Shapiro called me and yelled at me. He put, he put a voicemail message on. And he said, hi, this is George Shapiro. I'm Jerry Seinfeld's agent or manager. And he, uh, I don't know, there's some Michelle Christie or something. Now, he doesn't know that I'm the CEO, you know, secretary, costume designer, playwright. He's like, I said, I need to talk to this uh, Michelle Christie who would not let us in. So I called him back and I explained the situation. He goes, oh, it's okay. He was very cool about it. But I'm like, you can come back anytime. So did he? Did he ever? No. Okay. But you work with some pretty famous, famous people. I went to an event. A fundraising event for you, and it was uh, Jay Leno was the one that was performing that night, and Oprah did a show about you. Yeah, it's been, and then we, oh my gosh, we went to this event where I was being honored, and then found out President Bush was being honored too. Sweet. I was like, what? And so that was pretty funny. And President Clinton was in the audience, and so. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, but but Katy Perry was performing that night, so they were much more impressed with Katy Perry than oh, all I of doubt us. It. I doubt <laughs> it. I mean, you've received all kinds of. You received the George Washington Medal of Honor award. Uh, Hearing Angel Humanitarian Award. Yeah, but when you know this, like you know all the awards, it, it's really waking up in the morning and being right. grateful for what you do. And so that's where I'm at. I don't, all the awards, and even the CNN Heroes is, is really embarrassing and it's humbling, but it's a little bit like, oh my goodness. But if it brings but right. it spreads the word. It spreads the word, and that's yeah. the reason why it's important. And we've received yeah. so much, oh, you know, sure. positivity coming from this. It's been amazing. So the shy little five-year-old who doesn't want to be in front of anyone, you know, has learned it has to be the face of you no limits to. you have to do you it to get because you have to help the kids and so you have to overcome those fears how did you get to kennedy center and carnegie hall with your show well we ended up doing this one show that we wrote called timeless journey and we were partnering with the school out in washington dc and we thought well let's just present it to the kennedy center and see if they'd be interested in having our kids perform and they were all on board Jeez. it was amazing it was the first time in history Deaf children who speak were on stage. And it was amazing. Full house. It was so incredible. So how many people were there? It was like thousands. It was like weird. I was shocked. I just sometimes I'm always like, how did they learn about this? It's, it's great. Can I ask you, how, how difficult is this for you on a personal level? Because mm -hmm. I know you're a single mom mm -hmm. with a 13-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's stuff right there. I know that you got attacked a lot after the CNN heroes mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you, you said a lot of positivity, but you got yeah. brutalized. I think on a personal level, the 13-year-old, that's the joy of my life. So there's no no trouble there. Oh, he's um, he's, he's, he's a sweet, sweet boy. It makes my life so much better. I think at first I was shocked by the type of comments. Uh, insulting children just seems unacceptable to me. 
you know. Um, oh, where are they? Who are these people? I, I will. Right, yeah. And so that part was shocking, you know, for me. And then when they attacked me personally about what I do, I don't mind if people have a disagreement about it. But there were comments that were below the belt that had nothing to do with anything that I'm doing. It's just their own personal debate. But I also took this as an opportunity. Right? This is a time that we need to talk about this, that you think it's okay to call people the B word or, like, I think they call me a whore. And, like, I mean, just, like, it has nothing to do with what I do. <laughs> oh, but you know what? I have to say I did get one good one that I've never been called. I was an inspirational porn star. Porn star? Uh, but inspirational. Oh. Because I just, like, I'm on the inspirational because the, the, the video was. <laughs> Because I guess the video, the two-minute video was inspirational, so I must be an inspirational porn star. When I interviewed uh, Tara Connor, who was Miss USA, that got busted for cocaine use. Mm -hmm. And so she's, you know, sitting in rehab with a crown. I mean, not literally, but... I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so she said in the interview that I did with her that you know, people call her a, a coke whore. And she's like, what else you got? <laughs> yeah. That's it? That's all you got? And, and when, I, when, when we recorded that... Uh, again, the Vance who edits all my, he's like, do you want to edit that out? I'm like, no. Yeah. No, I don't. I Because think, yeah. we've all been called stuff, you know? It's like, really? That's all you got? Yeah, and I think for me, like, just being called names that, like, just things that are below the belt that have nothing to do with it, I think it was more hurtful for my son because my son would see it because it was oh, it's there for everyone to see. Right. And so for him... You know, he just couldn't believe that people would say mean things, whether it was me or somebody else. And what's very cool is I wrote back to a lot of them and was able to kind of get them to understand what we're doing. And it's like once you start to understand, to make these quick judgments on anybody, I think I get more defensive when it has to do with the children or the parents. It's like a parent has a right to make the choice of what they do and to say that these parents are cruel because they're making their children wear hearing aids and that's torture. I was like, you know what? If, if your kid can't see, you give them glasses. So if these parents want their kids to hear and they give them hearing aids, that is up to them. And because I'm sitting here thinking I don't really want to, I don't care other than the, the porn star that was that was uh, entertaining <laughs> for me to hear. I don't really care to hear what the comments were, but I'm sure people listening to this like, wait a minute, she works with deaf and hard of hearing kids. How could anybody attack that? Yeah, and the kids are all going to college. It's well, not like they're miserable, but then they'll they'll actually watch the CNN you heroes. You horrible woman, you. And they do. They say these. But it, it wasn't. It was just more shocking that they. You know what's sad? This is what CNN said. They called me on it, and they said. You know what's sad is that the people who are the ones criticizing, if you look at their social media text or Twitter, they don't spell the words correctly, they don't have good grammar, and you think, geez, these are people who really need to get educated, too. Like, they didn't probably get a good education because the school system failed them. Um, if you had one dream for no limits, what would it be? The dream I would have for no limits is that it wouldn't be needed. I would love to, you know, close my eyes one day, go up to the heavens and know that the kids are getting everything they need during the day and that all the services that they're receiving because, you know, these kids should be outside playing as much as it's so much fun to be at No Limits and I would love to keep that part going. We can do that where it's not needed. It's just wanted. Mm -hmm. And right now it's a need. Mm -hmm. These kids will not do well, unfortunately, unless they get the services and the majority of kids do not. Uh, the statistics was over 40 years ago, over was 80% of people with hearing loss graduate at a third grade level. Mm -hmm. But 40 years later, we're at fourth grade. Wow. 
Wow. That's terrible. That's okay. unacceptable. What does the deaf community want us to know? And I've asked that yeah. question to people who were uh, quadriplegics mm-hmm. or were amputees or whatever else. And it's usually like, well, just ask us, you know, you know, mm-hmm. don't pretend that you don't see us. Yeah. Come up and ask, how'd you lose your legs? Yeah. What, what's that like for you? So they, I think the deaf community wants us, I think they don't want to be forgotten. I think that they want to be heard. They want us to value their culture, which I do. I think it's so important that I'm actually wanting our kids to be part of it. But because they're being kind of stubborn with their rules, they're losing out. And so I would love to have that discussion of trying to listen to what they want. Like, what do you really need from us? Because right now they're not willing to listen. You know, they're at a point where they're actually trying to put pass a law, a federal law that requires and mandates that anyone who has a child with hearing loss must teach sign language only. That would never go through, would it? I don't think so. No, how do you? But but that is what's going through. And that if a parent did not teach their child language, sign language, that they would be considered neglect and they could be taken away, their child could be taken away from them. That's insane to me. It's like a parent has a choice to do what they want to do. We can't get into the homes, you know. And I think today it's just scary for them. And I don't know. It's a, it's funny to me because I know the CNN Heroes doesn't show any sign language, but all our middle and high schools are fluent in sign language, but they speak beautifully. Right. And they do both. So we're not against it. They didn't see it, so they made this judgment about it. And you know, that's a shame. It goes back to what you said. Ask the question. Right. Ask the question. What, what do your kids want mm. the rest of us? I think for our kids, I think they want to be asked instead of pointed to their ears and say, what is that thing on there? I think our kids love when someone goes up and says, what is that? And they're like, oh, it's something that helps me here. It's called a cochlear implant. And they'll just tell you all about it. They get excited that someone took the time. The other thing that our kids really value is when someone listens to them and doesn't give up. So as they're learning to speak, some of their they're hard to understand. You know, it right. takes a little bit of time. And sometimes people will nod and go, oh, yay. And then it's, they knew that they had no idea what they were talking about. And so they pretend that they understand rather than getting out a piece of paper and saying, what are you talking about? Are you talking about school? Are you talking about your dog? And then narrowing it down. Because when you give that effort, it oh. says, I believe in you. I believe that you're going to do okay. And I'm not wow. going to. And so just giving them that respect. How do people get involved with what you're doing? We are so lucky. We have such a strong foundation of volunteers. So anytime anyone wants to volunteer, we are up for that. Or across I, the country. Yeah. Because you're, you're based. Yeah. We're in, based in our headquarters in L.A. We have um, a school in Vegas. Vegas and Oxnard. And we mm-hmm. have an office in New York. And so for us, getting involved is just writing us. We're really responsive. We really want people to get involved. They want to do little fundraisers in their community. That's great. Um, we can set up fundraising pages for them. We can have them come work with the kids if they want to, if they just want to sponsor a costume to maybe sponsor a gala. Any area we will take and receive. And I got to tell you, we're really trying to be really good about showing our gratitude because when we get a, oh my gosh, how many times we've jumped in the air from Paul Mitchell, but you know, you get a check in the mail or they came and did our documentary and they did the hair and makeup for our documentary. I mean, just the joy we feel. It's just such a wonderful thing to see so many people giving up their time for our kids. Talk to somebody who um, is listening to this, doesn't matter where, mm-hmm. and they, they know a family, they know a kid, mm-hmm. or it's in their own family that's struggling with coping with mm-hmm. uh, 
son or daughter or a friend might have. I will get loss. on the phone with you any time. Michelle at no limits for deaf org. I write me, call me. I will get on the phone. I will talk to every parent. I do it all the time for families. I don't care. You don't have to be low income. I'm telling you, the pain is the same whether you have money or you don't because you're still lost. You're still confused. Think about it. 90% of families are having these kids. They've never had anyone in their family have a hearing loss. They have no idea what to do, where to go. And yes, they have resources. It doesn't make it any easier when you still feel confused and lost and the future feels like it's going to be a long journey. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. Do you have a final message? I My final message would be be a Mrs. Smiley, you know? <laughs> just be a Mrs. Smiley. I know it's a crazy thing, but it could be just random acts of kindness, and you don't have to get recognition for it. But just, you know, sometimes just if you see anybody who has a special need, go up to them, say hello, make them feel like they're part of this world. Um, don't ignore them. Um, do a little acts of kindness. Even if it's as simple as buying coffee for the person behind you, you know, it's just those little things where people, we keep spreading love and giving, and I feel like it just makes the world a lot better place. Beautiful. Michelle, thank you so much thank for doing you. this. I mean, I love to be using this platform with masters to mm. educate our listeners on all sorts of things, but just the inspiration that you deliver is, oh, really, I love you. Brilliant. I love you too. Talk.